And I can say anecdotally that I'm a mom who loved the lives she incubated from the moment she peed on those sticks and is also now well over 40 and in an experimental drug trial. If by some random fluke I learned today I was pregnant, you better not have an abortion. I'd have the world's greatest abortion. Welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. January 2020 marks the 47th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision which legalized abortion in America. The issue of abortion draws a dividing line between two passionate groups of people, those valuing human life at conception and those valuing a woman's right over her body to make a choice backed by a legal right. In March of 2013 in Clovis, California, Dr. Vody Bauckham spoke to an audience about how he believes that Christians are losing ground in the marketplace of ideas concerning the abortion issue and offers compelling insight from God's Word as to how we must practically and wholeheartedly engage this subject as followers of Christ. It's impossible to understand Vody's approach to the Bible without first understanding the path that he's walked. Raised in a non-Christian, single-parent home, Vody did not hear the gospel until he was in college. His journey to faith was a very unusual and an intellectual one. He understands what it means to be a skeptic. He knows what it's like to try to figure out the Christian life without relying on the traditions of men. Bodie and his wife, Bridget, have been married since 1989. They now have nine children, Jasmine, Trey, Elijah, Asher, Judah, Micah, Safia, Amos, and Simeon. Let's listen now to Dr. Bodie Bacham. And it's always good to address my brothers and sisters on this particular topic. This particular topic has meant a lot to me for a long time, partly for personal reasons. My mother became pregnant with me when she was in in high school. Had it been 1979 versus 1969, her options would have been a lot different. When I hear people talk about the importance of abortion and why it's important for women to have that option, the women that they describe almost always sound exactly like the woman who gave birth to me in 1969. But what I want to do is I want to help us think about this issue in a more full-orbed way. Because I believe that in some ways we are losing ground on this issue. I believe we're losing ground particularly in the marketplace of ideas. Because we have as we'd say where I grew up, we've fallen for the okey-doke. We have fallen for a trap. And the trap is that this issue is all about personal stories and that we have to have more compelling personal stories than the other side. If all we're about is personal stories, then we fall for another trap. And this I see in the political arena, where now what we do is, as pro-lifers, we believe that the most important thing that we can do is have female political candidates, because if you're a man, you can't talk about the abortion issue because you don't have the personal experience or personal story. Bad move. Bad move. Because you have just let our opponents determine the battlefield, which always gives them a tactical advantage. But we fall into it because we already fell into the trap of it's all about personal stories. It's got to be about more than that. If for no other reason than we are people of the book, we are people of the gospel, 
It, it is not about my personal story. My personal story has very little relevance. Why do I need to give you my story when I have his story that I can tell you? The gospel is actually his story, not mine. But we don't believe that. And that's part of the problem. So what do we do when we find something like this? This is an article. I won't read you the whole article, but I will tell you up front that I'm going to read extensively from this article from Salon.com. And the title is, So What If Abortion Ends Life? The subtitle, I believe that life starts at conception and it's never stopped me from being pro-choice. Now, I want you to listen to this and you'll understand why I believe we need to read extensively from this as you listen to this woman's line of reasoning. Because basically, pro-lifers have drawn a line in the sand. Abortion stops a beating heart. Abortion is murder, yada, yada, yada. And she's going, okay, we'll give that to you. And we still believe abortion ought to be legal. But listen to her. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about lest we wind up looking like death panel loving kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. When we on the pro-choice side get cagey around the life question, it makes us illogically contradictory. I have friends who have referred to their abortions in terms of scraping out a bunch of cells. And then a few years later, we're exultant over the pregnancies that they unhesitatingly described in terms of the baby and this kid. By the way, she's absolutely right. But these people, on the one hand, would have an abortion and say, no, it's just, it's just a lump of cells. But then if they decide that they want a baby, all of a sudden, at the same phase at which they took the other life, they will now call this a baby. She's saying not that exposes us philosophically, not that exposes the error of our position, but she's saying, get over it. I know women who have been relieved at their abortions and grieved over their miscarriages. Why can't we agree that how they felt about their pregnancies was vastly different, but that it's pretty silly to pretend that what was growing inside of them wasn't the same? Fetuses aren't selective like that. They don't qualify as human life only if they're intended to be born. When we try to act like a pregnancy doesn't involve human life, we wind up drawing stupid semantic lines in the sand. First trimester abortions versus second trimester versus late term. Dancing around the issue, trying to decide if there's a single magic moment when a fetus becomes a person. A human only when you're born? Only when you're viable outside of the womb? Are you less of a human life when you look like a tadpole than when you can suck on your thumbs? By the way, sounds like our argument, right? Because she's stealing it. And in her opinion, she's destroying it. Let me move down. And I can say anecdotally that I'm a mom 
who loved the lives she incubated from the moment she peed on those sticks and is also now well over 40 and in an experimental drug trial. If by some random fluke I learned today I was pregnant, you bet I'd have an abortion. I'd have the world's greatest abortion. That's brazen. Basically, she's saying some human lives need to be sacrificed if they stand in the way of other human lives. Let me ask you something. Where's your personal anecdote for her? What do you say to her when she steals your thunder on the abortion stops a beating heart argument? That's why I believe it's important for us to have a biblical, theological understanding and approach to this issue and the way that we address this issue with our culture at large. When you think about abortion, it's important to understand that this is an issue that goes all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to creation, all the way back to the garden, all the way back to the fall. If you remember, after the fall, God confronts the sinners. He confronts the man. He confronts the woman. He confronts the serpent. And the first time that the gospel is proclaimed in its inception is there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. When God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. There in that picture, God proclaims the answer to man's sin problem. But he also declares war, the war between the serpent and the seed. In chapter 3, there's the declaration of war between the serpent and the seed and the promise that the way God is going to deal with man's sin problem is through the promised seed that comes through the woman. In chapter 4, we have the first murder. The seed of the serpent, Cain, and I call him that because in 1 John chapter 3, John calls him that. The seed of the serpent, Cain, kills the seed of the woman, Abel. God declares war and then Satan fires the first shot. The very next chapter. The good news is at the end of that chapter, we're reminded that Adam knew his wife and that there was another son who came by the name of Seth. Then in chapter 5, we have one of those lists in the Bible that we all like to pretend to read. Reading along in the Bible and this happened and that happened and then there's a bunch of names that I can't pronounce and it's probably not important. And then this happened over here. and then I have... Every genealogy is extremely important in Scripture. Why is that genealogy important? Because God connects the promised seed that he gave to Adam and Eve and Seth to Noah, ten generations, so that when the flood comes, we know that the promised seed is still alive in the person of Noah and his sons, and then one particular son. And through the rest of the book of Genesis, we are tracing the promised seed. Where is the promised seed? Who is the promised seed? Through the rest of the book of Genesis, there is this promise and there is this hope and there is this doubt. Abraham is promised a son. What's significant about that? That his wife is beyond seed-bearing years. God promises a seed. The next link in the chain appears to be broken because this woman cannot do what God says women are going to do to bring about the one who will end this curse. So what do we do? Do we go to Hagar and Ishmael? No, we don't. We wait for God to provide the promised seed. Isaac. Next we have twins. Well, it must be the older, right? No, because this is not about birth order. It's about election. 
The older will serve the younger. It's not Esau, it's Jacob. Now we got 12 sons from a variety of different women. How do we figure this one out? Well, maybe because Jacob was so in love with the one, one, one. <laughs> that they're going to come from her, right? It's going to be Rachel, certainly, because of this wonderful love story. No, he gets stuck with the other one, one, one. <laughs> the wife he doesn't even want. He ends up having to give another seven years for the wife that he wants. But the wife that he wants can't bear children. Remember, this is all about the promised seed. The one that he never wanted to be married to proceeds to give birth to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, the father of the priesthood, and Judah, the promised seed. The one he didn't even want to be married to. Very next book in the Bible opens up with what? Pharaoh, seed of the serpent, who gives the order to kill male children born to the Hebrew women. The war between the serpent and the seed. And it goes on and on and on. We come to the New Testament, and amazingly, Matthew opens up with what? A genealogy. Why? To connect you to Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4, so that you know that Jesus Christ is the promised seed. What happens next? Herod tries to do what Pharaoh tried to do. Why? The war between the serpent and the seed. All the way to Revelation chapter 12 where we see this picture of this dragon and this seven heads and these ten horns. and What happens? There's a woman who is about to give birth, and he is there to devour the child. The war between the serpent and the seed from Genesis to Revelation. Folks, abortion is spiritual warfare, and you don't win spiritual warfare with personal stories. It's spiritual warfare. What we just read from this woman, this is spiritual warfare. That's evil. To be that flippant about the taking of life. I wouldn't just have an abortion. I have the world's greatest abortion. She's talking about killing somebody. She doesn't bat an eye. That kind of hardness of heart. Spiritual warfare. This is a spiritual battle. So what is our message to the culture at large? Our message to the culture at large is that gospel message. That Christ through his incarnation vindicates, validates, and verifies the sanctity of human life at every point, from conception to natural death. How? Folks, he could have come to this world in any way, shape, form, fashion he chose. God chose conception and every step of the birth process, thus validating, verifying, the sanctity of human life while it's in the womb, all the way to the end of life where God the Son experiences death, thus validating and sanctifying even that part of our experience. But here's the other thing. He also validates and sanctifies human suffering. God the Son suffers and dies. He doesn't just die. He suffers and dies. So from conception, we know that life is sacred and set apart because God has told us so through having his son, the second person of the Trinity, go through every phase of that process. 
So that whether we're talking about protecting babies in the womb or protecting people when they are weak and frail at the end of their lives from being cut off from the suffering that Christ validated, it's all the same theological principle. That's the story. Not my story. Christ's story. That's the one that gives us the biblical theological foundation upon which to build our argument. He even validates human sexuality. And the way that we use our sexuality. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now, wait a minute now. Yeah. I didn't heard about stuff like this. I think it was a movie about that. You know, Jesus, he, Jesus, he didn't do no sex stuff. <laughs> no, actually, he didn't. But his first miracle is performed at a wedding. The motif that he uses to communicate his relationship between himself and his followers is that of betrothal, a wedding, and consummation. That's what he chooses to communicate what he's about and what he's doing and the redemption that he brings to his people. We are referred to as the bride of Christ so that now this same Christ who for us validates and verifies the sanctity of human life from the moment of conception until its end in death also verifies and validates and sanctifies for us the very purpose of human sexuality. We must have a biblical theology of life. We have to. But here's what you need to know. Because this is spiritual warfare, we don't have an answer, you know, that is some sort of magical judo or jujitsu move. You give the right answer to a hard-hearted person, you know what happens? They go find another question. Then what happens when you find that? Do people go, oh, dude, we were wrong. The Bible said, no. They just go find another question. They don't want an answer. They're lost. Their eyes are blinded. That's where this woman is. I love it when Paul goes to Corinth. We read there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, I determined to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He goes on later in verse 5 to explain himself. Why? So that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom but on God's power. We preach Christ and him crucified. That's what we preach. We have a biblical theological understanding of the sanctity of life. That's what we preach, knowing all the while that there are those people out there for whom it will mean absolutely nothing because of the hardness of their hearts. But you know what? I'm not in the hard heart business. I'm just in communications. My daddy handles sales, okay? <laughs> I'm not in the hard heart business. But guess what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Not my compelling story, the gospel. Our compelling story may help earn us a hearing, but that's all. We don't rest on that. We rest on the gospel. Perhaps, I've had this happen. You know, you're a man, you don't understand. Yeah, that's I do. I understand because I sat at a graduation, bawled my eyes out. Why? Because they called my 48-year-old mother's name. She walked across the stage and graduated at 48. Why? Because at the top of her class at 18, she got pregnant with me. And her whole life was put on hold. Won't you tell me I don't understand this? I get it. But I don't just get it because of that. I get it because I'm a man who's married to a woman, and we've been married. This is our 24th year of marriage. We got married the summer between my sophomore and junior year in college. 
And people thought we were just absolutely nuts for doing that. You getting married? You got two more years of school. Why are you getting married? What do you mean, why am I getting married? You want me to wait two years before I get married to that? Two years? Are you crazy? The wisest man in the Bible, the strongest man in the Bible, and the most godly man in the Bible all fell to sexual sin. I am not wiser than Solomon. I am not stronger than Samson. I am not more godly than David. I'm getting married. And so, so we did, and our first child was born ten months later. Because we're what you call efficient. And so that here, it's my junior year in college, you know, and so I got a yeah, child, and everybody really thought we were crazy. I mean, they just, you know, they, they really thought we were crazy. You know, there's all this pressure. So it was three years before our next child was born, and then our daughter was born for us first, and we had a son, and then we, everybody, everybody told us, all together now, you have the perfect little family. And I wish, I wish I could say that we were strong, but we weren't. And so here's my wife, second child is born, She's on the table, cesarean section. One of the hardest things I've ever witnessed in my life, not the cesarean, but after it, when the doctor took his scalpel and his sutures and spoke to God on our behalf. And he said with his scalpel and his sutures, this couple no longer wants you, welcomes you, or needs you in this area of their life anymore. That's what he said to God for us when he tied our tubes. Several years later, here we are convicted about what we'd done. My wife comes into me. I'm convicted about, been convicted about it since watching this happen. She comes back. Several years later, my wife comes to me. She kneels down before me with tears in her eyes, and she says, baby, I need you to forgive me. She said, for cutting off the possibility of God sending us any more children. And I looked at her, and I said, no, baby. That happened on my watch. I'm your shepherd. I need you to forgive me. She said, do you mean that? I said, yes, I mean that. She said, oh, that's so good because there's this procedure. So we went to another doctor. Comes back and he tells us there's nothing he can do. One of the most awkward moments for me as a man, as a husband, ever. Both of us had been thinking about the same thing and we determined we, we need more children. And so we walked into an adoption agency and we said, listen, we would love to adopt two, three, four, five kids. <laughs> That's all right with you guys. Lady gets up from her desk and walks away. She comes back with a director. She says, tell her what you just told me. So we would love to adopt two, three, four, five kids from you guys, if that's okay. And they just start crying. See, here's something you need to understand. There are very few black adoptive families in the United States. In fact, I got a call just last year from an adoption agency, because now I, I, we hear from them all the time. <laughs> we, we do. We do. This is an ado adoption agency in Abilene, Texas. The call came from them. They said, if you guys know anybody, if you can help us. A black birth mother who said that she wanted her baby to go to a black family. And he had contacted, please listen carefully, a thousand other agencies and could not find one home study ready black family who would adopt a child. That's what it's like. We're not even finished with our background checks and everything. We get a phone call, you're a match for the baby. Like, what about, you know, we're supposed to, like, finish stuff. What do you, how do you know this is, what happened? She tells us, we heard this young woman's story, and we knew that this was your baby. I said, why? She had called him after she had delivered. One year earlier, she and her cousin were driving around downtown Houston area. They were carjacked and raped. She was on Depo-Provera, these birth control shots, which should have aborted any potential pregnancies. So they didn't give her the morning after treatment, which would have aborted any potential pregnancies. Several weeks later, she realizes something's going on. She finds out she's pregnant. She picks up the phone, calls Planned Parenthood, says, I was raped, I'm pregnant, please help me. Told her, come in immediately, we'll figure out a way to help you. 
her own words now. She sits in the abortion clinic, looks up at the clock, feels like it's taking too long. She says, it just dawned on me. This baby hasn't done anything wrong. Somebody will love this baby and adopt this baby. Eight and a half years ago, she put that baby in our hands. Our next adoption was a 14-year-old victim of incest. We didn't know at the time that she was a victim of incest. It wasn't until two years later that I had to go to a neutral location and meet with two plainclothes detectives so that they could take a DNA swab for my two-year-old in order to convict this family member. So when people talk about, you know, exceptions for rape and incest, they're talking about our first and second adopted child. But point is that sometimes, if it's necessary to have a compelling story to get to what we want to talk about, there are those. So we have a almost 23-year-old, a 20-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old, 5-year-old, 4-year-old, a 3-year-old, a 2-year-old, and a 1-year-old. This is important to me from a biblical theological perspective because of who I am and whose I am. This is important to me from a personal perspective because of my own story and the way that I came into this world. This is also important to me. Six times over the last eight and a half years, God has given us the privilege of saying to young women, not only give your baby life, but give your baby to us. Is that what everybody's called to? No, I don't believe that. I don't argue that. But I believe if you understand this issue from a biblical theological perspective, you're called to something. In all honesty, how can we see what we see, know what we know, believe what we believe, do what we've done, and then come to a point where we say we're out of the fight? Because with people writing pieces like this, the fight's just warming up. And whether you acknowledge it or not, you are part of this fight. Don't leave this place without making a determination by God's grace that you will put to use that which he has given to you to bring glory and honor to him and to proclaim the sanctity of every human life from conception to natural death because it is fitting in the context of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus As followers of Jesus Christ, let's wholeheartedly engage this subject, motivated by love, willing to adopt, volunteering, and financially supporting pregnancy resource centers like Life Choices of Memphis. To learn more on valuing human life, contact Life Choices of Memphis at 901-388-1172, or you can visit lifechoicesofmemphis.org. From Mid-South Viewpoint, thanks for listening. I'm Byron Tyler. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.